0: Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. We're coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles, and I'll get you to introduce yourself and your organization.
1: Yeah, I'm Brenda Brophy. First and foremost, I am the daughter of a centenarian. My mom turned 100 during the COVID lockdown this past April. Uh, And it was because of that that my advocacy and work and interest in this topic really kicked off. Um, As everyone knows and is experiencing, when you have a loved one in long-term care, there's so many challenges and the restrictions on visitation and um, sort of inconsistent application of essential visitor status protocols and policies has been quite difficult for residents and for their families in particular. So through the summer and the lockdowns, I went from doing a petition to then having a couple of newspaper articles where reporters reached out to me and then through that some daughters found me and we decided to start a Facebook group and just to sort of connect with other people with shared experiences and we call that group um, families for change stories from long-term care so it was developed as as a space where people could come together and share their experiences and their you know, basically shared trauma and find a safe space to share those stories and get some support from others that were going through the same thing. And then from there, we organized a rally at the legislature and all sorts of different things. Thank you so much for that, Brenda.
0: So when, did, for your group, when did you guys start to notice that the province was not allowing and recognizing essential family members?
1: As far as the group, and the group formally sort of gelled together around the end of the summer, but all of our members, and I think we're close to 300 now, everybody had their own experience, but basically the same thing that right from the start, Dr. Bonnie Henry will say every time she's asked that she's always allowed for essential visits. And it's true, the policy hasn't been updated since the end of May in terms of that it's worded exactly the same but it doesn't give clarity on what it actually means so the government basically is able to fall back on it and say look it's there you're allowed to be an essential visitor what are you complaining about yet very few people ever managed to get that designation so for myself I tried for the first time in June and couldn't I wasn't successful, and I tried the so called appeal process, and it's not an appeal process. It actually has no teeth, no nothing it's um It's just so that they can say you have an avenue to appeal, but there is no actual process or remedies available uh, I've tried again in in August, and many many of the families that I were connected with have been through the same thing, so the problems with that probably started right from the very beginning and it just becomes more dramatic over time because the decline that we're seeing in our loved ones is is staggering and catastrophic. My doctor actually, I have a home care doctor who comes to my home now that my mom lives with me and that's his word for it is the catastrophic decline being experienced by these people.
0: I can only imagine what the families are definitely experiencing at during this time as well because so just going back to what you indicated the province is just basically not recognizing or it's not very it's not written very clear because at the end of the day it's up to each
1: administrator at each facility to determine yeah. and to understand yeah. is that correct it's the health authorities so there's five health authorities in the province they all have from what i understand their own interpretation and guidance that they put out to their facilities and then the facilities themselves in order to have the social visitors that have been allowed since I guess it was July, July 1st it came into effect. In order to allow visitors they have to submit a COVID safety plan to their regional health authority and then the health authority approves that but there, um, Isabel McKenzie our seniors advocate did the survey and over 13,000 people responded and that showed just how incredibly um, diverse the different rules are as far as how they're being interpreted and implemented so the essential policy is there but there's no guidance there's no consistent process of how you apply who reviews that it's not independent i've heard people saying that the house there's a head housekeeper that gets to weigh in on whether your loved one actually um, requires essential visits so there's just this um, sort of bizarre implementation and strange rules that have come up. And and some health authorities like Vancouver Island, the person that I dealt with said that in island health, you will not be an essential visitor unless it's determined that your loved one is actively dying. So my, my comment to that back in June was my mother's 100 and she weighs 68 pounds and she barely eats. How is she not actively dying? And I used to feed her and take her food and make sure those things were happening. So how is she not actively dying? But, um, And then I know many people, and myself included, when they did get essential visitor status, as soon as your loved one improves, they strip it away from you and put you back to being a social visitor, and then the decline starts all over again. So, yeah, it's, it's no guidance, and there's definitely no oversight to how the facilities are operating. They can just do whatever they want. That is just... Um
0: you know, very, as I said, very, very, very traumatic uh, for uh, both parties. So then when the families do get the status given to them, provided to them, what are they seeing once they go into the facilities to see their loved ones?
1: Right across the board, what you hear from people is usually weight loss, a significant decline in cognitive function, physical decline. So because there isn't any ability, and this is you know really through no fault except for the pandemic and the staffing issues they don't have you know the occupational therapists They they don't have the staff to keep them up walking and exercising they've cancelled all the recreation type programs so many families have had a loved one who was walking on their own and mobile or using a walker who've now been put in a wheelchair and I mean, let's be real, it's a lot less work for the care facilities if they have them strapped into wheelchairs um, than walking around and and being ambulatory, which is what we're hearing a lot of as well. So those types of things, social visits have been allowed since July. So many of us, that was our first sort of glimpse at our loved one in several months when we got in in July. And, And I know for myself, FaceTime calls didn't show me how skinny my mom was and how much weight she had lost. the first time I saw her I was just I was beside myself and you know just and then change in mood too you um most people saw a real real significant change in a person's demeanor and and a lot of depression I can yeah I can definitely imagine I know that's
0: definitely been impacted here as well in the province of Ontario so with the definition of the essential family caregiver or family partner or is your group looking to make that more recognizable within the province of BC so
1: it can so there's not this mismatch and misinterpretation by each of the health regions? Well, that was Isabel Mackenzie, our seniors advocate, her report that came out and it was released to the government through a press conference for the rest of the public to see on November 3rd. And we have yet to see the government hasn't even publicly acknowledged or commented on the report other than to say well what they always say which is we're working on it so the recommendations the the most important recommendation was that every resident has the right to an essential partner in care and that should be first and foremost to allow safely allow that essential partner in care into the resident's room to care for them on a regular basis with more frequency and more duration than what's been happening under social visitation. Now, the intention of the seniors advocate was to have that on top of the social visitors. So you would now have more people having access, but since we're well into the second wave, it's acknowledged that that's incredibly unlikely. So the push is to simply have it um, as a right of the resident, the person in care to have someone that is designated to come in and care for them to help mitigate or stop the decline that they're experiencing, but it's fallen on deaf ears.
0: So that means in in the province of BC, the residents don't have, let's say, a Bill of Rights in terms of what is being recognized, is that correct? They
1: do have a Residence Bill of Rights that's grounded in legislation, but it's not, um, I believe that it's felt by government that the provincial state of emergency overrides that um however there's fairly strong legal opinion that that's not actually the case but they're they are not considering the individual rights of the resident they believe that they're protecting them as a population in congregate living and that this is for the benefit of everyone and as long as I don't die from covid nobody actually seems to care so we've had you know we've had um granted several hundred residents and there's the numbers are, are staggering right now of how many were losing just 41 this past weekend in long-term care and it's devastating but we've also lost over 4,000 since the lockdown happened in March so we've got 4,000 people in care that have died without their families very unlikely that many of them would have had their families there to hold their hand as, hand as they took their last breath. And they certainly had no quality of life without being able to have access to their loved ones. So that disconnect is mind boggling to families like myself saying, how is that okay? And why didn't we find a way? Exactly. And then with, uh, with that, then what is, is your group now
0: trying to organize to get a proper clear interpretation of the legislation? So it does recognize family members. It does recognize the rights of the residents as well.
1: Well, our group has advocated, and we recently had the seniors advocate, Isabella McKenzie, had a a Zoom meeting with our group. We had had 60-some-odd people dial into that, and we had questions for her in advance, and basically asked her, you know, what next? Your report fell on deaf ears. As an advocate, she doesn't have any power to implement the policy changes. Um, She can only gather information, disseminate it, and make recommendations, which she did very well. She's an amazing advocate and very pragmatic in her approach. And what we heard from her was, you know, just a sort of more of the same, is that you have to go to your MLAs, you have to keep making noise, you have to keep requesting um, access as an essential visitor, is what it's called under the policy, And when you're denied, make sure that you get it in writing and also ask where, when you get the rationale, you also need to push to find out where that's actually written so that the onus is on the person denying you to show where their authority comes from and where these rules come from, because very few of them actually link back to the public health officer. So Dr. Henry doesn't have really very many rules, but uh, facilities have just put their hands up and said, oh, we can't do anything. Dr. Henry says no. And then she says, but it's allowed. And then they say, but it's not allowed. So you have this continuous pointing fingers and you can't get anywhere. So our group continues to advocate. Um, unfortunately, yesterday, what we saw in a news conference was Bonnie Henry saying that that's why they're hurrying to get the residents of long-term care and assisted living vaccinated along with the staff. And then she mentioned visitors, but we haven't heard any clear plan. Nothing has been said to publicly to indicate that they won't allow visitors in until they too have been vaccinated but it made me believe when i heard her that this has been the plan all along you know in vancouver island we had we went six weeks without a single new case through the summer and yet they wouldn't go regional they still wouldn't let families in and let these people decline and they you know the decline would not be as bad as it is today had families been able to go in back then and if there needed to be different measures taken during a second wave we still wouldn't be as bad off as what we are right now. for sure
0: that and, that and that as I said, it's just very very traumatic and very you know it's a lot on the families, it's a lot on the on their on their family members, on their loved ones as well. Mm-hmm. so you mentioned about the the BC seniors advocate. Mm-hmm. Now you have a lot of dialogue and unfortunately, she you know cannot make a lot if she can only make recommendations. What would you like to see for the seniors advocate moving forward to have more of, um, I guess, more teeth
1: to be able to make Mm -hmm. some really good changes? We actually asked her that question. If you felt frustrated by um, the lack of power, but she doesn't, what she said to us anyways, that she doesn't see it that way because she has seen um, tremendous change, but it's, know like with anything with public policy and government change feels slow especially when you're the family of somebody who's you know has you know advanced age and dementia or whatever else because you want change immediately so she feels that there um you know there definitely has been change certainly over 25 years and and how things are done and you know feels that there is some progress so whether she actually had legislative powers to make things happen um, we didn't really get a clear answer if that was was the path. What she does want to see happen, and she said it would take very little money and it could be done right now, and I believe this is where um, hopefully we can see some some change soon. She wants to see an independent council or association set up in the province so that families and residents have a clear place to go because we don't. There's nothing, and the family councils are a joke. I've never heard anybody yet other than one group That were affiliated with they started their own independent family councils but they had to fight for them and i've been involved with two through my mom being in two different care facilities before i moved her out both of those councils were run by the ceo who administers the building so they don't they're not going to listen to you or do anything they want to represent that everything's fine so you can't actually complain and have any way to advocate for change or raise significant concerns because those all fall on deaf ears as well. So there needs to be something independent and somewhere for families to go and that's the only way we're gonna get there is for um, this association. And as she said, workers have their unions, the facility operators have their care providers association but the families and residents have absolutely nothing that would be wonderful that could you know
0: get moving forward especially the independent family councils i think is that from the group on vancouver island that is yeah, seniors, uh, seniors,
1: that? Yes. Um, to seniors in care crisis and for crying out loud they've both been quite successful at getting they actually had the administration um removed from two or three of the facilities on the island and taken over by the health authority because the private um company that was running the facilities w- was that bad so they were able to advocate and really make some changes and they did set up independent councils.
0: No that's great. And then for what would you like to, what would you let, you and your group would like to see in terms of moving forward what needs to be changed for in terms of the care model and should this be under the national um, the the health the actual healthcare act as well?
1: Boy, absolutely everything, I would say, from start to finish. So I don't think that there's anybody prior, unless you maybe work in the system, until you put a loved one in care, you don't have a clue. You hear about the, you know, quote-unquote nursing homes, um, but you don't know. I Had I known then what I know now, I would have found another way. I never would have put my mom in a long-term care facility. I made sure that she was in one close to where i live so i could be there every day but i never knew i wanted to be there every day because i really love my mom and i have a lot of fun with her and we're always been best friends i didn't know that i was going to have to be there every day to keep her alive and to make sure that she wasn't neglected so there's a big difference between wanting to hang out and have social visits and be well connected to your loved one and making sure that they don't die at the hands of um, a facility that doesn't have their best interests in in mind and um, residents are they are a number they are a bed to fill and they are tasks to be performed they are not um, treated like human beings we're just warehousing people it feels like they're just considered i hate to say human garbage but certainly considered disposable especially when they have dementia and that's been The dementia journey with my mom, I thought was the worst thing I was ever going to go through. Then we got into long-term care. I thought that was the worst thing I was going to have to go through. And then the pandemic hit and the lockdown came. And I don't really think we can top that. I'd hate to think of what it would have to be to top that. So um, the model from start to finish, uh, hearing that we spend 30% less than other developed countries makes me sick. Um, Considering the small percentage of Canadians that actually end up in long-term care so how did this become a billion dollar industry and you know what are we actually doing so families are all very passionate about fighting not only for access as essential care partners to take care of their loved ones through the pandemic and what's happened but going forward now that we have some real momentum and people are starting to listen and long-term care is in the news every single day and it didn't used to be even through the summer we used to fight to try and make sure that the story stayed out in the public and to get some focus. And now it's always in the news and it's globally as well. So, you know, we have to find a way and we have to come together as a society and figure out what that model needs to look like. My focus is certainly an interest is on dementia care because my mom has dementia, but there's certainly all sorts of other things. Why do young people end up in a long-term care facility because they had a brain injury or MS or, so many things right like we're 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 dropping the ball as a society and and my mom at 100 years old and all these other precious seniors did not deserve to spend their end days being treated like this
0: definitely not and it's just it's it's just very heartbreaking just to see everything and and all of what you've mentioned is exactly what is happening where if let's say the community is not able to support that person they end up in long-term care And that shouldn't be just the end-all, be-all answer for everything. Have you seen as well in the province of BC that the for-profit model has been quite devastating to individuals in long-term
1: care? Have you seen that as well, or your group? Yeah, I and because I didn't experience that, I have two experiences. One was um, a health authority-run facility, and then it was so abhorrent that I I spent 22 months fighting to get my mom moved out because it was a decrepit falling apart old building plus the care standards were just terrible so like I said at that point in time I thought that was the worst thing I was going to go through and I finally was successful in getting my mom transferred which arguably in the city of Victoria was deemed to be one of the very best facilities that was publicly funded it was run it is run by a nonprofit society so I have those two experiences I haven't had experience directly with for-profit but certainly we have lots of members in our group that have I have heard things about the dollar amount allocated for their nutrition my mom drinks boost juice um, along with eating food and I've heard from one person who their father and he's since passed away again because of the decline that he experienced where they were allocated one uh, nutritional drink per day Whereas my mom's facility, there was a big cupboard full of them. I could walk into the kitchen at any point in time and get my mother another you know, container of juice. Now that I have her home with me, I'm like, wow, those are really expensive. So you can see why a for-profit model, if they're worried about their profit margins, the person's um, choices in nutrition, I've heard limits on how many adult diapers they can have allocated to them. So... Like Again, it comes back to what are we doing as a society when we can make money off of our most vulnerable? We don't do it to kindergarten children or daycare centers. Well, I guess maybe we do have for-profit daycare centers, but I keep thinking about the two extremes in society. We have pediatrics versus geriatrics, and we somehow feel that we can warehouse these people and treat them this way because... Either no one's watching, or they won't remember long enough to tell us. And lots don't have a son or a daughter or a spouse that goes in every day and watches, so they basically can just get away with it. And I think that profiting off of that population should be illegal. Myself, I just it, it's I said without even having direct experience, um, I, I just find it sickening um, on every level. We should be finding ways to make sure that, you know, maybe if you tied bonuses for CEOs and profits to how well they are cared for the quality there's independent reviews done maybe it's monthly you know family should have a right perhaps it's to a camera in the residence room all the time I don't know what it has to be but they they shouldn't just have free reign over these people and when we how often do we have to see the video of an elder being hit or yelled at or pictures of the sores on their buttocks because they've been left in a diaper or they haven't been bathed in weeks like How often do we have to see that? We wouldn't, if this was in a daycare facility, my God, you know, the world would erupt and it would be shut down. These places just carry on. So I don't understand. Yeah, just like if
0: it's normal, regular everyday thing, which is not, and it's very, it is very traumatic to see. It's very unsettling because I know when my loved one was in a long-term care facility, I mean, I would go home and I couldn't, you know, rec- reconcile some of the things that I've seen and, and experienced. So I guess going into, you know, my next question is with your group is what else are you guys doing to further mobilize and get people more involved and trying to get changed, you know, made and and be effective in the province?
1: Well, for our group right now, the crisis and sort of the immediate need is there's still many, many members who are fighting to get essential access. And perhaps there might be a small glimmer of hope now because we hear that the hope is that before March, all the residents in long-term care will be vaccinated. Presumably, you know, older, I think the average age of a visitor is 63. So it could mean that visitors have their vaccines by summer so that you'll, that'll kind of take care of that immediate crisis. But going forward, there is a lot of discussion on what is the what next. I believe keeping the focus in the public eye is one of the biggest things that needs to happen, but also trying to organize collectively and perhaps this is as a society in Canada is to say, how do we get all these different groups? Because there are so many. I have um, reporters and groups like yourself and people who reach out to me all the time, but it's a little bit fragmented. And I think that there's, you lose some traction when you don't have sort of a cohesive voice or, or approach. And it gets very difficult because there's so many issues, like the whole system is fractured and broken. So how do you start and how do you make changes quickly? Because this can't continue. COVID will be behind us eventually. Everyone will be vaccinated. When the doors are back open in long-term care, it is not going to be fixed. So then what? You know, I think one of our best slogan signs for the protest rally was COVID didn't break long-term care. It exposed it. And now what? You know, we've let, you know, we let the population down again because it doesn't look like anything that was recommended or intended to be put in place helped with the second wave. Seniors are dying every day in these long-term care facilities. Um, So what now? I don't know, but I know that we need to organize and as a society, we need to do better. And probably that needs to be led at a federal level. And I, you know, right now with caring for my mom and having her home with me, I don't have the kind of time that I wish that I did if I did I would read every piece of legislation I would know the mandate of every group I would be involved in everything that I could possibly get my hands on and that's I think where it needs to it needs to start as a national conversation and there's been so much research done and so many reports I don't think that we need policy papers and white papers and um, you know federal or provincial inquiries and maybe that's on some level, those have to be, especially in Ontario and Quebec, when it was so catastrophic, that will happen. But there's already enough leading experts. Talk to the experts and put some money into this. You know, the infrastructure, maybe the models. You know, there's some beautiful examples of how dementia care should happen. And, you know, it's that's why people end up in long-term care. They have dementia, they can't be on their own, they're not safe, so start there. Look at the butterfly project, look at some of the you know, leading world models on what dementia care can be, and put some money into that, make this important, because until the governments are willing to really put the big dollars, um, and not feed the corporations to just have this be a profit exercise, um, and start helping us as a society rethink how we're gonna care for these people, right now, and um, I'll share this. I, didn't know what I, I had no way of knowing what I have learned since, what long-term was like when I put my mom into care. My mom had dementia. She didn't have the kind of issues that are generally associated with Alzheimer's. She had a severe lack of short-term memory, but it was starting to get to the point where like she couldn't cook for herself. So we had to make sure her stove no longer worked. I managed her care from a distance, but my mom is a two-time cancer survivor and she lives, she has to wear a bag because she had colon cancer and she couldn't care for her colostomy anymore. So. You know, I spent time, I would go up every month to take her food. And when I realized the kind of messes she was cleaning up in the middle of the night and some of the things that could happen, I thought, oh, she can't do this anymore. She's going to fall. Something bad's going to happen. And that was really what drove me to make this change for her. However, not realizing when she went into long-term care, they were no more capable at dealing with this either. So I I became the person that had to deal with all of her care. So what I find out now with moving her in with me in September, I'm eligible for a funding model called Community Supports for Independent Living. I can set my mom up as an employer and I can hire staff privately who can come in and care for my mom. So the funding will probably be set up in the next month or two. I can hire two or three people. I already have one person that I pay privately and I can manage the staff to come in to my home and take care of my mom. If I had known that that was an option, my mom lived in a beautiful two-bedroom condo. I would have hired staff, and a lady that I spoke to has three, and they all work two days on, four days off, and they stay 24 hours a day. I would have done something like that for my mom. So there needs to be a way to ensure that there are options that can be based on a person's individual needs and their family's individual needs to help them find a way. Because these beds in long-term care aren't cheap. I understand they can be like eight to $10,000 a month of subsidized care. Well, there's lots of options that you can come up with for that kind of government funding. So treat them like individuals, people with their own stories and their own unique needs. And same with the families. Not everybody has the ability to bring their loved one into their home. Um, some may. Or it could be that you know maybe smaller homes or something are, are more the idea. But find something other than this institutionalized warehousing of seniors as the model of care that makes the most sense because it doesn't make any sense. It's just it's just a lot of money thrown away in my opinion. So get the conversation going, but our group, quite a few people have commented in recent days, like we have to keep this going forward and, and in a formalized way, I'm not sure, but I know that we have enough people with enough experience and certainly people that have lost their loved ones in recent months that um, they're gonna be good stakeholders to engage with. We just have to figure out how our voice is going to be heard and how we can move forward as a society. Definitely, I I would
0: definitely agree because there's many groups, not just only in the province of Alberta, uh, province in British Columbia, but as well as across the country, and we're all just kind of fragmented and just needing to have one voice to be able to speak nationally to all of these particular issues. And it's very interesting that you mentioned about you didn't know about the, you know, the funding that you could have received at home, and that's the other component about it as well. Yes, looking at long-term care, but looking at the community, what could be available for the individual? To, to still support them at home because nobody really wants to go into long-term care. They don't say that they want to go into long-term care, but they're, it's left as no other option. And that's
1: why they end up going. Mm-hmm. Well, so, and that's, that's the interesting part too. And if it is, there's so much profit made off of this, um, you know, nobody wants you to know about another option, right? And I was actually told by the first person that came here to assess my mom, because they really didn't know what to do with me, to be honest. I on my... My last attempt to become an essential visitor was denied, um, and then my mom fell and broke several ribs. She had a big bump on her head and laceration on her arm, and I was able to go into her room for seven days and bring her food and care for her, but I had to fight every day to get permission for one more day. It was ridiculous. This was um, right after the Labor Day weekend and by the end of seven days my mom was bright and perky and engaged and eating and she would laugh and not understand why it hurt when she laughed because she could no longer remember that she fell and broke ribs so all of those things but once she was doing better and could use her walker again they said well no you don't need to be here you're not an essential visitor Um, you can go back to social visits and they wouldn't even let me go into her room anymore they wanted her she would have to go downstairs to a central location and sit on a hard chair and have a visit and I was like, okay, we're done, have our things packed, I'll be there Wednesday afternoon was kind of how it all played out. But the health authority didn't really know what to do with me because long term care is intended to be, you know, it's the it's the end game, right? You're there, um, you know, it's not treated as palliative care, but it's not generally that you go out the front door when you finish your time there, right? So um, I just moved her out and then and then approached the health authority to see what kind of help I could get. So they were a little confused by my situation. But the very first person that came here, I knew about Cecil funding because her the whole medical team, we have this amazing, wonderful doctor here who's been in the news a bit lately as well. And that's all he does is he takes care of seniors in the community and he has a whole team. Just the, the most, he's an angel. He's just an absolute angel. And he knew about it. And he said, You have a right to it. You keep pushing. Don't take no for an answer. It's the best option for you. So when I asked about it, I was told that they make it intentionally difficult and complex to discourage people from applying. And I just stared at this woman and I said, But why? She goes, I don't really know. And I'm like, Interesting. Interesting. What, again, what are we doing, right? Why do you, there's wait lists for care facilities. It's such a fight to get them transferred when you end up in, the, in a one that's not a good match. And everything is made difficult for the families, which then in turn is difficult for the residents. So why do you continuously treat families like, it's almost like you're the enemy in this system where you're just trying to do the best for your loved one and it, you have to fight every step of the way and advocate every single day just to get what should just be your right so um, again and i think that you know that's probably what we need to have in terms of an organization is free assistance for families to help them navigate because i've i've helped so many people now you know, not even pre-covid just trying to help them how to advocate once you're in the system from hell as to how to deal with transfer requests or you know all the simple things and now if you you know long-term care should be the last as it is now the absolute last option that a family has not the first option
0: so then I guess just to, to wrap up going forward your group is just mostly going to be about advocating and just trying to you know disseminate the information for families and to assist them along this journey because they don't recognize in terms of how challenging that the, that this ends up being and what challenges they actually end up facing, right?
1: Yeah, it may end up in that. Um, when I named the group Stories from Long-Term Care, I think it was more the thought that we could share stories and it's almost cathartic to be able to talk to others and so many people um, have said thank you you'd have no idea what it meant to know I wasn't alone in this. But then the rest of the stories come out of all of what they've endured over the years or their time dealing with the system. So, you know, we don't talk a lot beyond sort of the immediate needs right now, but I know for sure, because there was, we call ourselves the warrior daughters, there was four of us that really started this, of what we need to do um, going forward to fight for change and to make sure that the voices our voices as families and our residents and the ones that may be residents someday actually don't have to go through something like this. This wasn't for nothing. And I think that if the only good thing that comes out of COVID is a continued focus and the inability as a society to keep ignoring this because I don't know how, although nothing would really surprise me at this point, but I don't know how we can ignore now that we've seen what we have so um yeah we, we with the next steps are you know don't have a clear idea but I know that uh, I definitely want to be part of the conversation and I will never stop fighting for this because I I don't think I've ever felt as many emotions and as passionate about anything in my life and um like I said you don't you don't know until you know and, and you can't forget we can't forget what's gone on or it's all been for nothing and it can not be for nothing we just can't forget and again
0: i just want to thank you for coming on to the long-term care chronicles and speaking uh, about your journey and what your group is doing so thank you so much Brenda.
1: yeah no thank you for having